Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. All right, we're picking back up in Galatians, verse 6 in chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Well, good morning. You did it. You got here. They stole that wonderful hour from us. Nobody wanted to get out of bed, but you made it. The, the few, the faithful. Doesn't mean those who didn't make it are unfaithful. Doesn't mean they're not. So we'll let you deal with that. But uh, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. We have a good one today. Uh, Father God... We just praise you that you are good. God, we thank you that we can gather as your people this morning in worship. We thank you for giving us this community to walk through life with. God, whether we are in the middle of a time of struggle or rejoicing, God, it is a blessing to know that we are not alone. To know that we have been united in you and with you, and that we are members of one another. God, we pray this morning that your spirit would continue to shape us into a people after your own heart. God, by your word and through your spirit and for your glory. Amen. All right. I'm going to start off easy. I know everybody's tired. Uh, has anyone ever been angry? You can raise your hand. Yeah, thank you. Like Doug, man, he shot his hand up so fast. <laughs> Wouldn't get that excited about it. But, right, so like I'm talking not just like, mm, I'm like, like steaming hot angry. Not just, not just because you have an angry disposition necessarily, um, but somebody has done something so wrong, so offensive that you just couldn't let it go. I'm talking about righteous anger. Anybody ever feel that? You can just say yes, I know. If you lie, I'm going to get angry, okay? <laughs> but it's okay that you get angry sometimes because Jesus got angry, right? He flipped some tables. He chased some people out of the temple. I always struggle with that as a kid. It's like, Jesus can't be angry. 
But it wasn't like this fit of rage, because when we read John's account in chapter 2 of his gospel, he tells us that Jesus saw what was going on, and then he took the time to weave a whip out of cords, right? And then he uses that somehow. I don't think he was beating people, but he was making them think he was going to, and he's flipping things over. It's crazy. But, but he didn't, like, lose his marbles. It was this righteous, calculated anger. So I was just curious about your anger problems because you might be aware that like I meet with a lot of people. I meet with a lot of people and the majority of those meetings are encouraging. They're enjoyable. There are some that are emotional. I've seen my fair share of tears, but that's typically because life's hard, the conversation may be hard, but then some of you just like to cry, right? Good morning, how are you? You know, it just, it just happens. They just flow. But almost always, no matter what I know the conversation is going to be about, no matter how hard the topic may be that I know is coming, even if I know I'm going to have to do some admonishing in this meeting, they always, almost always, start with, how are you doing today? How's your family? How's your week going? That's just how we begin this. There's almost always this personal element, some customary pleasantries you might call them, because even though sometimes I know that the conversation is going to be hard, I care for this person. I care about their well-being. And I'm confident that grace and mercy will prevail even if the conversation is hard. But... There have been a few times, a few situations, very rare occasions where there was an offense or a frustration or someone did something that was just so wrong that I simply could not do pleasantries, where I was angry. And I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. There's probably only a couple people in the room that have ever seen me angry, probably not something you want to see, But it has happened. Those really rare occasions where someone does something that's just so egregious or averse to the gospel that I just couldn't let it go. I had to call them up and invite them over to have one of these meetings where we're going to talk through it. And those are the conversations where pleasantries just don't work. I, I simply cannot fake it. It's not like, oh, I care less about this person But this looming cloud of frustration makes anything other than getting right to business just seem fake. And so they walk in, right, cabin maybe, I don't know. They walk into the cabin, they they sit down, and like, we're, we're, it's right, hey, it's like, okay, let's do it. It is straight to business with a prayerful hope that maybe we'll hit the pleasantries on the back end of the conversation, because it ain't happening at the beginning, right? We're going to do this. And so... I understand. What a horribly depressing start to a Sunday morning sermon, right? I get that. That's okay. But this is what's happening in our text this morning. Paul is angry. He's really angry. He's so angry that he totally forgoes the customary pleasantries that he begins every other letter with. Think about it. Every single letter that he wrote 
There's this salutation, and Paul has something encouraging and uplifting to say because Paul cared for these people. He cared for these churches. He's thanking God for them. He's praying for them. He's commending them for something, but not here. Last week, we covered the salutation, and so this is where we would expect some sort of encouraging words. But Paul has none of that for the Galatian churches. No praise, no thanksgiving, no commendation. Instead, Paul starts out with saying, I am astonished, right? You start like that, it's not good. I'm astonished at how good it is to see you. No. And this is the tone that he keeps through almost the entire letter. Paul is steaming not because of some personal offense against him, but because the gospel of Jesus is being undermined. The saving work of Jesus is being belittled, and he simply cannot fake the pleasantries. He drives right into the problem, and he's coming in hot. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And you might notice these words, so quickly. They are so quickly deserting, which, as I mentioned last week, seems to indicate that not a whole lot of time has passed since Paul proclaimed the gospel and planted these churches to the current situation, right? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting. And and Paul's astonishment is no small thing. He had seen a lot in these years of ministry. He has addressed a lot of issues. But in this instance, the wide-scale turning and the quickness of this turning is astonishing even Paul. He's astonished at how rapidly they have deserted him who called them in the grace of Christ. They had literally transferred their allegiance That's what the Greek word for desertion means here. It was a military term for soldiers who would revolt or go AWOL or men who changed sides in politics or philosophy. So Paul is shocked at how quickly these Galatians had become religious turncoats. They had become spiritual deserters. They had deserted him who called them in the grace of Christ and were turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, as Paul says, but the true gospel, the biblical gospel, is what Paul communicated in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. It is the gospel of the grace of God. As we talked about last week and we talk about every single week, it is a gracious God sending his son to bring salvation to undeserving sinners. That is the gospel. In grace, he gave his son to die for us. In grace, he calls us to himself. In grace, he justifies us through faith when we believe. In grace, he calls us sons and daughters, heirs with Jesus of all things. All is from God. Nothing is due on account of our merit or actions or work or righteousness All is grace. But these Galatian converts who had believed in the gospel of grace, 
we're now turning away to another gospel, a gospel of works, which is no gospel at all. These false teachers, the, the Judaizers, were teaching that unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. But that's not the gospel. That would mean that we have some action that we must do to be saved. And it was tricky because these false teachers still said, you have to believe in Jesus, of course, for salvation. But they stressed that you must also be circumcised. You must also keep the law of Moses. In other words, Christ has begun the work, but now you have to finish it through actions and obedience. Christ began the work of salvation on the cross, and now you must complete the work of salvation through your righteousness. But here's the true message. If you boil down what they're saying, Christ's sacrifice was insufficient to save. That's the message. Christ's sacrifice was insufficient to save, and now it is up to you to finish the saving work on your own. And I pray that we, we take this to heart. If anyone thinks that their work or their merit or their righteous actions or moral living play any part in their standing before God, what you are saying is that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient. What you're saying is your job is to save you because Jesus didn't complete the task. That's the message. It's Christ plus something. For the Galatians, it was Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus obedience to the law. But for us, it might be Christ plus actions of service, Christ plus theological understanding, or maybe Christ plus political power or societal sway. And listen, most people wouldn't say that this is what they believe, but functionally speaking, so many professing believers live this way. They believe in Jesus for salvation, but they live in such a way that they, and they think in such a way that their identity, their confidence, their value, the way they gauge their faithfulness is rooted in their performance, in their actions for God. We live in this society that's striving with all of its might to find itself to find its purpose and meaning in identity. And it will look anywhere but God for that. And some of this has seeped into the church because even for believers, so often their sense of nearness to God waxes and wanes with their confidence in themselves based upon how much they've done for him, how successful they feel they are how much they've given or how faithfully they feel that they've served. Should I say feel again? It's based on feelings. So when they struggle, when they doubt, when they are fearful, these things that every single Christian on earth experiences, rather than bringing those struggles to a loving and gracious God who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Shame consumes them. They convince themselves that God must be displeased. He's disappointed. 
That they need to get their act together before approaching the throne of God. They have subtly convinced themselves that God's favor is a product of their righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ on their behalf. And so life becomes this emotional roller coaster ebbing and flowing with their own estimation of their righteousness at any given moment. There is no confidence in Christ. And I know that there are people in this room that can relate. And hear me when I say this, everyone struggles with faith. If they say they don't, they really struggle with faith, okay? The Christian life is a continual battle to believe the gospel, to combat the lies of the world and our flesh who tells us to find our value in what we do, to carve out an identity for yourself from this world, which is why God gave us his word and his spirit and this community to constantly point one another back to Christ, to his righteousness on our behalf. And Paul says there is no other gospel. Not, not only that, but to add works to the gospel of Jesus, to think or act as though salvation comes through Jesus plus anything is the antithesis of the gospel. It is anti-gospel. And it is this very idea that is infuriating Paul. It's why he's writing this letter. And if we look closely at what Paul says here, he's not just addressing a theological discrepancy that needs corrected. Paul's not saying, you're a little bit off course, let's turn the ship five degrees to the west and then we'll be okay. He's saying, you're on the wrong ship. It's the wrong ship altogether that is not saving faith. It is a lie from the pits of hell. Christ plus anything. Christ plus any attempt to justify yourself is not saving faith. And we know this because Paul doesn't say that pursuing this alternative thinking about salvation has separated you from sound theology. He doesn't say you've turned from thinking rightly. He says, you have deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. You have deserted the God who called you in grace. If your salvation rests on your works in any way, you have missed the entire understanding of grace. You have deemed yourself the author of your own salvation. And if you or I could save ourselves, then Christ's sacrifice was unnecessary. And if Jesus needed our help to save us, then his sacrifice was insufficient. As Paul will say later in chapter 5, verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. And so this is why Paul is so angry. It's righteous anger. The very salvation of Christ, the sufficiency of his sacrifice is being undermined by these false teachers, and people are believing the lies. They are buying into this anti-gospel heresy, and souls are at stake. The very churches he had planted, the people he loved, were in tremendous danger. And that's why what Paul says next sounds pretty serious. It may even sound harsh to many of you. 
After addressing the whole church with his astonishment at how quickly these believers were buying into the false doctrine or distortion of the gospel, he turns his attention to these false teachers. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to to you, let him be accursed. That sounds like a big deal, right? Sounds pretty serious. It is serious. This word translated as accursed is anathema. It almost sounds worse to say anathema. It's this Greek word that's used twice here, uh, which also used in the Old Testament to describe the curse of God resting upon anything or anyone that had been devoted by God to destruction. That's serious. So Paul says that his desire is that they would come under the divine curse of God devoted to destruction. He wishes that God's judgment would fall upon anyone who preaches a different gospel. That's a big deal. So what do we do with that, right? Hypothetical. I know you don't answer my questions. (laughs) It's kind of harsh, isn't it? To wish divine judgment upon anyone? Is this just an angry outburst by Paul? Should we explain it away and decide that This is inconsistent with the spirit of Christ. I mean, a lot of people would, especially these days, right? We're 2023. We might need to cancel Paul because this doesn't sound tolerant or loving. Like, you're done, Paul. But we need to understand that this is not Paul wishing divine judgment because of some personal offense or or because his authority was being challenged. And it's clear because he doesn't just talk about the false teachers. He says, if we, the disciples, or an angel from heaven, or in verse 9, anyone preaches a different gospel or distorts the gospel, let them be accursed. Right? This isn't simple personal animosity. Paul's like, even if I or the disciples distort the gospel, let that curse come upon us. And just for good measure, even if an angel from heaven comes down and chats it up and it's a heretical angle, angel, I'm getting excited, this happened last week, even if an angel comes down and preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed, which seems a little bit out of left field, right? Anybody, I don't even know if I want to ask that, anybody have an angel preach a false gospel to them? That'd be a weird thing to raise your hand about. So maybe Paul just wanted to like extra emphasis, right? Angels come down, and and maybe that's what Paul is going for. But oddly, does anyone know how Mormonism began? Hmm, it's weird. If you're curious, just go to their website. They're super honest about this, which is weird to me. But um, I went to their website, and the religion started in 1823 when, and I quote... An angel by the name of Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith and told him of the existence of an ancient record engraved on plates buried near his home. Jackpot. There it is. And do you know what those scrolls said? Jesus is not enough for salvation. That's what they say. He's not enough. You have to play a part in your salvation. 
And obviously they go well beyond that to denying the deity of Jesus, holy underwear, you get a planet, you get a planet, you get a planet. Everybody gets a planet. But it's a different gospel altogether, together, supposedly brought down by an angel. Or if you want to go like bigger on the world religious stage, it's like going from NASCAR to Formula One. Islam began when, big surprise, an angel, Gabriel, supposedly, came to the prophet Muhammad revealing all these new teachings to him. And guess what those new teachings said? Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. We must perform acts of righteousness to be saved. So, I don't know if Paul was being emphatic or prophetic when he spoke about angels. Maybe it was both, but I do know that he was clear. There is only one gospel. And the second reason we can see that this is more than an angry outburst against rival teachers is, is that Paul is not flustered or rushed. He's extremely clear and deliberate. It's almost as if Paul knew the difficulty of what these words were in verse 8. He knew it would give people trouble, give them pause. They might question if he's just angry and frustrated and didn't really mean it. So he says it again in verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So, just in case there was any question, Paul repeats himself to ensure that the Galatians knew that this was not an excessive, exaggerated statement. It wasn't uh, a proclamation hurried by passion, but a calmly formed and twice articulated judgment. If anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one you received, let the curse of God fall upon them. Those are hard words. And Paul knew they were hard. Further evidence of this comes from verse 10. Knowing that people would take issue with such a hard, seemingly harsh judgment, knowing that people would question Paul's love, like, does this guy even need to be a leader? He's unloving. <laughs> he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, Paul knew you cannot serve two masters. That's what Paul was getting at here, and Paul knew that he was a servant of Christ. So appeasing or pleasing the masses simply was not on his mind. The name of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the very gospel itself was being belittled and attacked, and Paul was not going to sit back and watch these False teachers lead so many people away from the truth. And so he speaks out boldly in defense of the name of Jesus. And he proclaims a curse over anyone who would pull people away from the one true gospel. And so if you still think, man, Paul, that's kind of harsh, that's unloving, somehow overstepping, we can look at what Jesus said about those who would cause others to turn from the truth. In Mark 9, 42, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
That's loving Jesus. Yeah. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus leaves the 99 to seek out that one lost sheep. Jesus laid down his life to purchase our redemption because salvation through works is impossible. We were condemned in our sin. And so to teach people that our works are required for salvation is to teach people to deny Jesus. That's it. This is why Paul is so passionate. Souls are at stake. I mean, think about it. We, we, we see a lot of Paul's life, a lot of crazy things. How often do we read about Paul being angry? Not, I, I, don't, I don't think a lot. I mean, he was beaten a bunch of times, whipped countless times. He wasn't angry. We don't hear about his anger. He was shipwrecked three times. Funny, he doesn't talk about how angry it made him. I mean, he was bit by a viper and shook it off in the fire, which was super cool. Not angry. He was imprisoned repeatedly. Funny, he didn't write about how angry he got over that. He was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. And what does Paul do? He gets up and walks right back into the city. Not angry. He just kept preaching the gospel. This was ministry to Paul. To live is Christ. To die is gain. But if you belittle the name of Jesus, if you manipulate the gospel, Paul's going to get angry. Paul's coming after you. He's hot. He, his, his passion for his own life paled in comparison to his passion for the gospel of Jesus. That is both what he lived for and what he was willing to die for. Because Paul knew that the battle that was being waged was far greater than a battle against right thinking or right theology. As he says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul was in a battle against spiritual forces and authorities and demonic powers over this present darkness. And they wanted to lead people astray. They wanted to feed our egotistical flesh that thinks we can save ourselves. You see, Paul doesn't proclaim a curse over these false teachers and anyone who would teach some other gospel. I say he does proclaim this curse, but the reality is that every human being who does not trust in Jesus for salvation already lives under this divine curse. They are existing under the anathema of God. Divine judgment is all that awaits. So in one sense, for Paul to say anathema is no different than saying, come Lord Jesus. Right? Because when Jesus returns in glory, it will be a wonderful, glorious day for all who believe. But we must not lose sight of the reality that he is coming to judge the world. 
and all who have not trusted in him will be condemned. But here's the beautiful truth of why Jesus came. What Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let that sink in. We all existed under the anathema of God, under a curse, condemned to judgment. And Christ came to bear that curse for us, to take upon himself the divine judgment of God and to offer us his righteousness so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. And to think that we could add anything to the saving work of Jesus is to say, I prefer the curse. I would rather live under the curse of the law and try and be righteous on my own rather than trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so my prayer for this community is that we would sit in the unfathomable magnitude of the grace we have been shown, that we would humble ourselves before the God who took on flesh and became a curse for us, and that we would fight with all the power that is in us through God for the truth of the gospel. That whether an angel from heaven or our own flesh whispers lies into our ears, we would stand firm on the rock that is Christ, knowing that salvation is found nowhere else. Let's pray together. Father God, if we are honest, we are passionate about many things. God, we get frustrated and angry at times about so many things. But often those things are about defending and protecting ourselves. God, guarding the image that we've created. God, we pray this morning that you would make us passionate about your gospel that we would have no need to defend ourselves because our righteousness is through Christ. God, that we would bear the wrongs that come so that others might experience your love and your grace through us. And God, I pray that we would find tremendous joy and peace in the freedom that you have provided as we rest in the fullness of what has been promised to us through Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org. Uh...